I'm the Nostradamus of seltzers. It's the Beervana Show, broadcast almost live in Portland on X-Ray FM and available anywhere on your favorite podcast service. I'm Patrick Emerson. I'm a professor of economics at Oregon State University. And with me, as always, is famous beer writer and author and savant of all things beer, Jeff Hallward. He's grinning. Uh, but I'm not sure if that is an evil grin or a happy one. Uh, he's authored several books. Secrets of Master Brewers is one. Very nice. <laughs> the Beer Bible, Volume 1 and Volume 2 are others. Yes, that is inaccurate, but thank you. Well, okay. So the Volume 1 wasn't called Volume 1. <laughs> Not volumes. They're editions. Oh, edition 1. Edition two. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So congratulations, by the way, on your books. Well, I thank you. I was smiling because um, we were, before we recorded here, talking about uh, midlife crises and where we were in our various professions and how uh, uh, perhaps due to ap apathy, perhaps uh, well-balanced mental health, we weren't particularly uh, wedded to our social status vis-a-vis <laughs> -vis our career. So when you said all of that, I thought you were going to call was, back. It was a subtle, yes, it was a subtle nod to that. I didn't know that you would make it explicit, but yeah. So, um, okay, man, everything's, everything's public on the pod. The world's most renowned beer writer <laughs> jeff allworth yes we shall have you you have been invited to a special 60 minutes with the greatest mind in beer you see that that's exactly that that, that exactly shows you how how tall the the mountain of beer writing is uh, we, we we may we may be well known among extreme so this is like uh, when in my in my classes we talk about monopoly and you know, usually people think, oh, monopolies, they, you know, you make big profits because you're a monopolist and you've cornered the market and stuff like that. And I'm like, yeah, but you can be a monopolist in something that nobody cares about, nobody wants. You can be a monopolist making like some beverage that is disgusting. Right. Like, congratulations, you have the market. It doesn't mean you're going to make a lot of money doing it. Uh, so that's kind of how I think about you, Jeff. Yes. As I often, <laughs> as I often joke, being uh, one of the most well known beer writers is like being one of the tallest mountains of Kansas. <laughs> I haven't heard that from you. Uh, that's good. I like that. Yeah. Like yeah. That. It's, uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it is what it is. Um, we were talking to our good buddy uh, who's about to drive from, uh, Portland, Oregon to Nashville, Tennessee. What the hell is he? And yeah. And it's like, once you get out of the Mount Rockies, it all looks the same for about a thousand miles. That's true. If you like corn, you're golden. Yeah. Oh boy. <laughs> if you really dig corn, you've got, yeah, that's going to be days of delight. Uh, okay. The heartland. <laughs> sorry to our Kansan and Iowan friends uh, and Nebraskan friends. Oh, I'm not sorry. They know. They know. Uh, you know, I grew up in Wisconsin, which was kind Nebraska, of nice. Nebraska did name themselves the Cornhuskers. So if they don't want us to focus on the fact they grow a lot of corn, they probably shouldn't call themselves the Cornhuskers. There you go. Like you got to be proud of what you got, right? I grew up in Idaho, which is known for its famous potatoes. So that's that's about as modest as it gets. Yeah. How would you rank a potato to a corn? I think I would rank potatoes higher than corn. No. Oh, you, you can fry a potato and turn it into a French fry. That's pretty exciting. You can mash it up 
That's pretty exciting. You know what? What you, do you do with corn? You know what you can, you can make a tortilla. That's good. Actually. That is right. There you go. Uh, you know what you can do out of both of them? What? Make alcohol. Oh, see, there you go. <laughs> They'll ferment. They've got sugar in them. That's right. You make vodka out of taters, and you can make just about anything out of corn, including you can make tasty. By the way, you can make tasty bourbon whiskey. Oh, I was gonna say whether moonshine. What was the base grain of moonshine? Well, there's all different kinds of moonshine. In America, oh, it was right. corn. A yeah, lot of right. Corn. Isn't it corn? So there you go. Yeah. Like birthplace of an entire... See? Now <laughs> now corn is clearly edging ahead of potatoes in your mind. I can see uh, you. Well, I don't know. Yeah. And, and also, there's I mean, when we, were, when we were in Wisconsin, so every place you go, they have their local whatever they have. And uh, Wisconsin also has a lot of good corn. It was in the Midwest. So... Mm-hmm. When, when when late summer came along and the local corn came out and we got corn on the cob, man, it was tremendous. Yeah. I had never had corn yeah. like that in my life. Yeah. I was blown away. It was yeah. amazing. And I mean, I, I've had a lot of good potatoes. Let's just. You know, let's <laughs> That's say. true. That's true. The potato doesn't quite shine like a good sweet corn in peak season. In in Colorado, of all places, I was introduced to Olath corn. Do you know about this? Olath? I, I guess it's Nebraska or Kansas or something, but I don't know. Or maybe, anyway, exceptional corn. I spend my summers in Ontario, Canada, the same thing. We, you just drive down the little country lanes and there'd be a farmer who has a big stack of corn out and you stick a dollar in the box and grab some corn and it's amazing. You could eat it without cooking. That's how good it is. Yeah. So sweet. And, yeah. Oh, awesome. Those little tiny kernels. Yeah. <laughs> so last pod we talked about uh, college football for a long time. Well, this this podcast all American about agriculture. Corn. Yeah. Corn, corn and potatoes. <laughs> the the, 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 uh, the Midwest and Plain States agriculture we'll talk about. Actually, we're talking about Idaho, so Intermountain West as well. We'll throw that in. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, Wisconsin. You know, you know what uh, Idaho also grows? Sugar beets. Sugar beets and taters. We're really good at the root vegetables or the, yeah. root, the, the tubers. The tubers. That's, that's the tuber state, really. The tuber state. Yeah. Southern Idaho. It's not, it's not a glamorous state is what I'm saying. Yeah. I mean, it's got some pretty fantastic parts. Incidentally, I should mention I've lived in Idaho for 36 years now. All right, I'm eligible for 36 years. So, really? Yeah. <laughs> I, I no longer live in Idaho. Uh, yeah, uh, so there's there. a revealed preference, as we say in economics, there's a revealed preference yes. argument there. Yes. Revealed, yeah. stated, celebrated <laughs> preference. I'm happy to go on the record here. Uh, but Idaho has got good beer. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that. I don't know that you could say as as much at about Kansas and Nebraska. I, yeah, I would probably put Idaho beer above Kansas and Nebraska, but you know, you get into the upper Midwest and all bets are off. A lot of good beer there. See, the upper Midwest got the glaciers from the ice age. That's the big difference. So there is a little bit of geographic uh, diversity. They've got lakes. You got your lakes. They got, they've you got, got your little hills. You got your lakes. Forests. Here's some forests. Yeah. Yeah. So. True. So if you're going to go to the Midwest, you really should go to the upper Midwest. Yeah. Wisconsin, Minnesota, Iowa's okay. Illinois <laughs> skip entirely. Michigan's good. Uh, <laughs> I do like Chicago. Yeah, yeah, but that's basically Wisconsin. <laughs> I mean, literally. Except for you're that, like, you're like a, a short, between a short walk from Wisconsin. <laughs> I mean, it's basically the southern suburb of Milwaukee is Chicago. So I claim Chicago as my own. It's a fantastic city. I'd spend. I'd, I'd live there. I would live in Chicago. Chicago, quote, 
Basically, the, the what do you call it? The southern, southern part suburb of, of the southern suburb of Milwaukee. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they should definitely put that on their license plates. Yeah, if they know what's good for them, they would. They should disassociate themselves with Illinois as much as possible. <laughs> Illinois is actually a, an amazingly weird state because you got Chicago up in the northeast corner, then you've got like typical plains. Right, the Midwest in the middle. And then down south, you've got weird sort of hills, slate canyons and stuff, and it's kind of the south. You are in the the south. south. People have thick southern accents. Yeah, so you go down to Carbondale, and suddenly you're in a different state all of a sudden. So Illinois is kind of trippy. Illinois is trippy. And for those of us, it's possible that one or two of our listeners don't recognize that uh, you are at Wisconsin. one of the main places you claim is the homeland is Wisconsin, and I also spent time in Wisconsin. So us talking smack about Chicago and Illinois is powerfully important, so everyone's aware. All right. Uh, and we, yeah. we do have listeners in Chicago, man, and they often uh, will comment about how they are not excited about us slagging on and how we mangle how we mangle all things Chicago. <laughs> Uh, so I want to tell you a quick story about Chicago. So they used to have a little airport right there downtown in Lake Michigan. It's called Miggs Field. And it's gone now. They've probably not in Lake Michigan. But I know no, it. seriously, it was a reclaimed land. It was a little piece of reclaimed like out, land out, out, out in, out in yeah, yeah that they built out into the lake. And uh, when I was growing up, my my father, my stepfather, but the father I lived with at the time was an uh, aspiring pilot. He then became a pilot for United Airlines and worked for thirty some odd years. Just retired because he has to. Long story short, long story short, we would fly from Madison and we'd land right there in Miggs Field and you could walk, literally walk and you'd be right in downtown Chicago. We'd go to like the Museum of Science and Industry. And stuff. That's awesome and completely unnecessary because it's like a two hour drive. Yeah, but it's like a half an hour plane flight and you're, then you're right there. Anyway, I just wanted some of that's a little Chicago history I'm throwing in there. Those kids don't even know about the Miggs Field, but the Miggs Field is like- Eisenhower Expressway, which is all kinds of excitement. Oh God. Uh, all right, well, should we talk about beer? Wait, now what? Yeah. Oh, oh sorry. That was the other podcast. Yeah, this is the podcast of <laughs> Midwestern Agriculture Today. Last week with the podcast of college football. All right. So it's been a while since we did a classic style, the section. It has been a, uh, been a while. This yeah. section. Did I say that right? But thanks to a listener request, we have a lovely overlooked tradition to present today. Bière de Garde, France's signature style. It has a history dating back to the 19th century, but the current examples look a lot different. In today's show, we'll discuss that transformation, what caused it, and what you can expect from this elegant, unexpected style. And one, by the way, that I'm really interested in because I actually know nothing about Beardy Guard. So I'm excited about this show. You're going to tell, you're going to, you're going to do some serious teaching. Nobody does. You're the fun thing. You're the professor today. All that soon, but first, let's talk about the. We have some evidence that inflation and possibly lingering aftershocks from COVID are denting the beer industry's prospects. The National Beer Wholesalers Association, NBWA, if you're looking for it online, released their monthly beer purchasers index, and it was grim. It's a handy index that tracks whether a segment within the beer category is in growth or contraction. In their most recent report, every single segment, save one, imports, was shrinking. And I didn't put this in my script, but the imports were just barely, they do this cool thing where it's, they have 50 is 
exactly in the middle. And if you're right. at 51, you're slightly expanding. And mm-hmm. if you're 49, you're slightly contracting. eBay imports was pretty close to 50. Wow. Um, the group that were, were failing includes craft beer, seltzers, and flavored malt beverages. Seltzers? Yeah, no. Seltzers was like at 33. They were tanking bad. So. Oh my gosh, what a surprise. Uh, they've been, and they have been taking for a while. So I told you, by a, the way, it's a pretty big. I'm the Nostradamus big. of seltzers. You did. They're like 10% of the craft, or the 10% of the beer market. So it's a pretty big group, but mm-hmm. it's been the better part of a year that they have really been performing. In fact, this is not in the the, uh, the news segment, but uh, I saw a headline that everybody's kind of getting off the Boston beer bandwagon because. Uh, uh, Seltzer is really tanking. Which is theirs, White Claw? Truly. Truly, truly. Uh, Yeah, surprises me not one whit. No, I think... But the overall picture does kind of surprise me. Well, that's what I mean. The overall picture actually doesn't doesn't surprise me that much at all. I mean... um, Really? Yeah, no. Uh, So I I think particularly because of inflation. Yeah. I I read somewhere else, and this is super hearsay because I don't remember the source or what I read. Particularly, you're not in a court of law, man. Go for it. It's true. I'm on a podcast. You can pay for it, (laughs) which is hearsay and rumor, Uh, and conspiracy theories are just around the corner. Uh, That the. uh, draft market is especially soft right now, which is completely, uh, that makes total sense to me because uh, beer is really expensive in the, on, on tap now. I think it's $7 pints are basically standard. Wow, I just yeah. can't believe a lot of people are going out for, you know, three or four pints because you start talking about real money. Well, we were discussing this the other night. We were out together and still, even now in Oregon, almost everything feels normal. Sort of, quote unquote. Right. People are going to restaurants, they're not wearing masks. They're not wearing masks, but they're not going in mass. Right. Oh, did you see that? That was nice. Oh, it still feels well weak. Like demand feels weak for in in situ eating and drinking. It does. Um, their restaurants and pubs aren't as full. They close yeah. earlier. Yeah. And, um, and I think people are really buying especially alcohol they're buying less just because it's so expensive yeah so that was one one uh question i was going to ask you how much uh part of it's just people maybe now contracting adjusting to prices all their money's going to gas so you can't (laughs) there's no money left for beer uh but i was also wondering how much of a lasting effect will sort of people getting used to take out you know doordash kind of delivery service stuff is going to have uh versus just eating at out like i thought i thought there would be a robust robust rebound in demand for those experiences because we've been starved for them and i've been surprised at how weak the like it's summer it's full-on summer now in oregon you'd expect everything to be packed and lines and stuff and it's just not yeah i I have no insight into this except that i've observed just what you said and so i don't but it's it's it is surprising to me and i i don't know uh you know I, i tend to go more to breweries, brew pubs, that kind of place, rather than restaurants. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think those are typically where young people go. And I assume that young people as a cohort have less money yeah. um, than, than older people. So less disposable income, less money to spend on $7 pints. Um, and I've talked to some young people who, who pre-function now. So they have a couple of beers at home and then they go out to a pub. Uh, save, one money. Beer. save money. Uh, yeah. Interesting. Um, 
So those are the days that feels that feels like when we were young, Jeff. That's right. <laughs> we were thinking a lot, long and hard about how we were going to maximize our our minimal, our meager incomes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, that's that's sort of uh, sad. I guess the one silver lining is that the whole point is to kind of slow down the economy to get a hold of inflation and then go through a little pain and then we'll be happy days ahead. I mean, that's your bailiwick. So you tell me is that so, going to happen? You know, just hang yeah, out. there's so much, there's so much, I think part of it is there's just so much going on in the world uh, in, at all levels um, that, and they seem, they seem to be kind of picking up speed. Like it Wall is. Street's scared of inflation. So Wall Street's tanking and because Wall Street and Wall Street's going down and inflation's going up, other people, you know, they're, they're getting scared and they're looking at their 401ks. They're not going out as much, but then they're not going out as much. So now all of a sudden, uh, the, the restaurant. Yeah, and there's a new, yeah. there's a potential dock worker strike on the West coast in the U S and they need a new contract. And it just, it feels like one hit after another, yeah. after another. and Hey, by the way, Russia invaded Ukraine. And that's exactly. Right. That's right. And and uh, and you can't. Nobody can get any. I was recently at, at Fred Meyer, uh, looking for my off-brand or my my generic Allegra, uh-huh. uh, and because a regular package of Allegra is like thirty-nine dollars. Uh, if you buy the name brand and the, the Kroger brand is like half that uh-huh. and there were absolutely no Kroger brand Claritin Zyrtec or Allegra anywhere in the in the building and I assume it's one of those supply chain issues yeah, could you be. know and so it could also be the fact that there's so much pollen in the air right now that everyone's just going crazy yeah that could be it too but you know uh, and so I guess what I didn't buy any of them because I'm like $30 is too much I'm just going to suck it up <laughs> so then <laughs> these so these things have resonances and they keep going because the more consumers aren't buying stuff then yeah. people like you talk about consumer confidence and on and yeah. on and on it goes. And that causes Wall Street to be spooked. And- From the economist point of view, that's what we want right now is we want people to start contracting a bit uh, because inflation is getting a little out of hand. And so I'm contracting, of, baby. I'm contracting so, hard. So you did the right thing, Jeff. You've, thank you for your sacrifice for the United States economy. Excellent. All right, well, let's move I'm on. I'm still going out to the pubs, but damn it, I'm going. I'm going with drippy eyes and itchy, or drippy nose and itchy eyes. <laughs> oh, I'm sure everyone appreciates that. That's the other crazy thing. Like, if you have any kind of sneezy, everyone's like, "Oh, geez, get away from me!" No, I always say it's allergies, it's allergies, but everyone else gets that because they're allergies. Uh, the other news story, by the way, is something that came to me and probably you the same way, which is suddenly there was this image on Twitter. Yes. And it turns out that the roof, well, you say the roof to Astoria's buoy beer. Collapsed. Yeah. So I don't, we don't actually have a good data. So you're right. The script may misalign with your view and we can talk about that. Go yeah. ahead. Though. So I'm going to go off script here and just say that buoy beer is a brewery in Astoria, Oregon. Astoria, Oregon is the place that Lewis and Clark ended up when they finally reached the Pacific. It is the confluence. Well, the confluence is where the, the Columbia River meets the Pacific Ocean. Oh, joy, wrote Mary Weather Lewis. Ocean in view, which was wrong. He was, he was Columbia. Out Columbia. And they would be pinned down there for a whole horrible winter, which they described as their lives. That's Astoria, baby! Yeah, but they had dogs. So they had food. Uh, they were fine. They just, they just got the, they got an early taste of the European experience of a Northwest winter, which yeah. is... Yeah. Why do they complain, man? They've reached Nirvana. Uh, they've reached Birvana. They didn't know it yet. That's right. Uh, anyway, Astoria's Bowie Beer is a uh, a brewery that's uh, sited in a former cannery that's on piers, on piles, in the Columbia River. 
And uh, we've had a ton, a ton, a ton of, we've had record-breaking rain, rains in May and June. Uh, I mean, maybe even in April. Anyway, lots of rain, lots of water. And so people suspected that the, the, the pilings beneath the brewery gave way. It's not clear from the picture what happened. but And the brewery, weirdly, is not given a, a final no, report, which is, which is no. really curious. So. But a huge mid, the midsection of the brewery basically completely collapsed. And well, what you can see, you can't see any failed pilings, but you can see that the roof has collapsed. So it is... Yeah, it is. That's why I wrote that. But it, it but yeah, the yeah. whole thing is a little bit mysterious. The front pilings are still there, but the ones behind may well have collapsed. It's not clear. You know, breweries are in the process, are in the business of making beer. Beer is mostly water, and water is super duper heavy. So when you got a ton of tanks sitting on top of piles, and those piles are getting weakened by uh, really strong over, you know, uh, excessive river flow, then maybe that's what happened. That's what people assume, but we don't know yet. Anyway, uh, that happened. So the brewery is uh, in the process of trying to figure out what's going on. In fact, they just tweeted out that they were actually canning beer again. They got some mobile canners. Oh, I should go back to the, to the script, Jeff says. All right, here we go. Famous for its floor window view of lounging sea lions. Yes, that's the best part. You can sit there drinking beer and watching the sea lions both below you and out in front. Uh, Bowie is the picturesque brewery. It perched atop pilings and out in the mouth of the Columbia River. The brewery hasn't given any extensive details about what exactly went wrong, but apparently didn't have anything to do with those pilings. I, dis- I dispute that. Disputed. No one was injured in the incident. Yes, we know that. And the brewery plans to use mobile canning to get up and running soon while the pair of damages. In fact, they've already done it because I saw a tweet that said we uh, we are canning again. And thanks to the mobile canning facilities. Yes. Yeah. The, the no injury thing was also kind of amazing there's only two days yeah. a week when no, one, no human is there and this thing happened to happen at one of those moments when no one was there. is that right yeah oh good so, good zero, good. zero people were on site so it's a it's a tragedy um in the sense of you know we love buoy and now no one's gonna get to see those sea lions for a while on the other hand it wasn't a real tragedy like nobody died yeah, yeah, yeah. hopefully insurance money and all that stuff and and it is the middle part i don't i think the pub part is okay i doubt it's open right now i think the whole thing's probably closed but uh, I will say that it's one of the very best places on earth, but definitely in Oregon, to sit and drink a beer. <laughs> I once had uh, I once had the luxury of getting the table that's they have a big sort of I don't know garage door window or something that that faces the Columbia River. No, it's just, just a big giant opening. Anyway, just, yeah, it's just glass and it's just and it's the whole wall. Yeah, yeah. but ours was open. I mean, we were open to fresh air yeah, they, and. They and the seals, the sea lions were out there swimming right around out in front of us. Yeah, they have a gla- some harbor seals, which are kind of rare, but you can actually see them out there. Yeah, and they had a gla- and they have a glass floor, so you can see the pilings underneath, and sometimes the seals congregate under there, and uh, it's just amazing. It's just a, a, a serendipitous moment uh, sitting there sipping a beer and feeling um, uh, at one with the world. Yeah, and you you get to see so, so Astoria, the the mouth of the Columbia is one of the world's great. Um, sea uh experiences it is i don't know two miles wide three miles wide it's like this the river the the mighty Columbia is a big ass river when it hits the ocean it's as big as it gets and it's it's really 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 big yeah and the columbia bar is one of the most dangerous little stretches of water Two thousand ships have gone down there and i so want to do it man i want to grab a motorboat and just bomb through that thing i can do it damn it i can get through it yeah uh (laughs) it'll be nice knowing you <laughs> oh brother. Yeah, the the let's say the Coast Guard is active there. Because <laughs> everybody gets stuck on the Columbia Bar, gets in trouble in the Columbia Bar, apparently. It's a big ass deal. You gotta time it with the tides, that's what I know. 
Yeah. That's what I know. And it, you know, cross it at the right moment. Don't try to cross it against. And the winter is horrible because that's when you get those big waves coming in. Yeah. yeah. There's a fabulous museum there, a uh, maritime museum now in Astoria. Yes. It's definitely worth a stop. And you get these amazing videos of people, of rescuing people who get who get in trouble in the climate. All right. Park. So I have to say this. We're, 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 we're deep in the weeds here. And it's the second podcast. Where we got deep in the weeds. But by God, I got to tell this story. So you, you go to the- <laughs> You're going to stop us. But no, you're going more. You're going deep. Let's you're going go deep, baby. So you go to the Maritime Museum. They tell you all about the boat pilots. So yeah. the, the thing is, they, they bring these big tankers in, uh, you know, ocean-going vessels. But because the bar, which is the, 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 the rip water between where the where the ocean is coming in and the, the sea is going out. Yeah. It's really, really, really hard to get through there. They have special pilots who, who go out onto the ships and drive the ships across this really deadly part of the thing. And so we learned all about them about bar pilots. And they go out in these little tiny boats and they get up beside these giant uh, giant ships and they drop a ladder down. And they, they scramble up them, and it was the most fascinating thing in the world. Yeah, I mean, the, the little bar pilot boat is is heaving in these seas, these like twenty foot swells, and yeah, so they're going up and down twenty foot on the side of this boat, and they have to grab the ladder right at the right moment so they don't get crushed between the two boats or fall. It's fall like a boat. It's a time. It's boat. really it's really a crazy thing. So we walk out of the we, we we see this experience. We have this great experience. We walk out and like on cue. We see a bar pilot heading out, and we sit there like, "Oh my God, it's happening!" And we watch, we watch the whole scene play out. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, yeah, it's a cool place. You go to you go to Astoria, and hopefully by the time you go, Bowie Beer will be back in business and serving uh, beer on site. But I hope all the best to them and their rebuild. Indeed. Um, luckily, they've got a new site right behind them that hopefully they can use to sort of figure this out. That's right. Like they already are. So yeah. Okay, so uh, let's talk to, about beer. Yes. Oh, okay. Let's do that. <laughs> Since we got some time to fill for the rest of this podcast, right, we're gonna talk about beer. I see we're running early here. Let's fill it with some beer. Yeah. All right. So, beer de garde, Jeff. Tell us. All right. Where it comes from. So this is a style that had a tiny, tiny, tiny little bit of interest in America ten years ago or something. Mm-hmm. It's a really obscure style, uh, and now it's almost impossible to find these beers. And I can't remember. I looked around and I couldn't remember who had referenced that they would like to know more about this style. Um, but I thought it's an excellent time to do this. Let's talk about beer regards. It's a really interesting story, even if you're uh, not so uh, familiar with the beer style or, or find it so easy to find. So uh, we go back to pre-1830. Uh, Belgium didn't exist. And even you know, several decades after that, there was a there was a band of uh, uh, Belgian Flanders and, and uh, French Flanders, which mm-hmm. was a kind of coherent uh, region. Right. And so you had you had these famous brewing cities: Roussillare, Mechelen, Brussels, and Lille in France. Mm-hmm. And it was the most famous French brewing city. Uh, it's in what was when I wrote the first edition. Beer I will call the Nord Pas-de-Calais. Mm-hmm. And now the de, de France. Main topic, look at that. How do you how would you say that? you 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 actually have some familiarity with language of French, so I'm gonna ask you. Oh, uh yeah. Haute, Haute de France? Yeah. Uh apparently they renamed that region. Oh, I didn't know they renamed it. Yeah, right. I'm 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 familiar with the old region. Yeah, I know. Nord Pas-de-Calais. Yeah, exactly. Uh, 
yeah, I've spent time in the Panacale. Yeah, it, it's an interesting region. So if you drive out there now, uh, you will go past just, it's just like, it's very green and verdant for one reason, because uh, there are these weird conical uh, kind of hills uh-huh. that are all really pretty and green and weird and conical. Sally immediately picked what they were. I didn't know what they were. I'm like, no, I think this is pretty natural. <laughs> Uh, and then just this was the heart of the great trench warfare of uh, World War One, uh, and so there's something like there's like dozens, scores, or hundreds of cemeteries there. There's cemeteries everywhere. It's yeah. crazy yeah. amount of cemeteries. Yeah. Um, it was a really real place. So it's an interesting kind of place to go. Those those hills are not hills. They're slag. Right. Uh, because that's, this is a great mining region. Yeah, uh, <laughs> and now they've 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 just been covered up with verdant topsoil, I guess, or something. I don't know. Anyway, they're, now they're green. Yeah, I I, I remember. Um, was there a movie or a TV show recently about a big giant slag heap in I don't know where it was in the Midlands in UK mm-hmm. that that yeah. collapsed and like crut and buried a school and stuff. Like they, I mean, they get humongous. In other words, like they become like little mountains. <laughs> yeah. You ever heard the word grisette? Uh, it's a it's a, it's a style of farmhouse ale. Mm-hmm. It's famously low alcohol. It feels petite saison, grisette, or small saison. Mm-hmm. Well, grisette it means you, you know what gris is, yeah? Gray. Yeah. So it's, it it was named after the miners who come out of the mines. Ah. Completely covered it up, looking gray. Uh-huh. So the, 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 the gray people, uh, um, so, and it comes from this region. So originally, Lille made beers that were basically saisons, right? They were really just like you would have found in uh, far western uh, uh, Belgium, right? So there were these keeping beers that people would uh, brew. They came in different strengths. Um, there's a great famous. Uh, 19th century historian called George Tambra, mm-hmm. and he talks about uh, these beers as being very much like the, uh, a beer style in Belgium called Itzet, which is, uh, again, just sort of like a, a a wild ale that had been a barrel aged for a long time and was, uh, you know, he, he compared them to those. Right. Uh, so, you know, go back to the mid 19th century and even. Uh, uh, you know, after Belgium was a big country for a short while, and even a couple of decades after that, the beers of Lille and the beers of Belgium were the same beers. There, right. there was no distinction. Right. Uh, you know, you had you had town to town differences and different styles and all that, but 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 in terms of the brewing tradition, they were very much the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the by the turn of the 20th century, things were already starting to change, and this was just trends, not really to do with uh, anything to you know like. There, there was no cause of this other than trends were shifting, which happens in, in beer. If you think about West Coast IPAs and hazy IPAs, which was, you know, trends sometimes change. Um, and when I wrote the beer bottle, I, I was researching, I found a nice quote from a, a British brewing scientist who traveled there uh, in 1905, and he said, he wrote, and he wrote this for a brewing journal. Five years ago, about 50% of beer consumed uh, was of this nature. So he was talking about wild, the, the, the old kind, the 19th century stuff. Um, but now it probably does not exceed 20% of 
Mm. So it was already in, in a steep decline. So that was all happening. These were traditional breweries, small breweries, making these kind of weird, old, funky ales. Right. Uh, and then World War One comes. And it's just this massive, massive catastrophe. The Germans destroy all the breweries, take, you know, melt them down for munitions. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Norden Potticlay, I don't even know if that's what it was called then, but whatever, the France, uh, that region, anyway, 20% of the male population was killed. So even after World War I, uh, when the breweries tried to come back, there were as drinkers, which is kind of a shocking thing yeah. to think about. Uh, we th- you know, think about losing 20% of your drinking base. Yeah. Now, it's almost, by the way, sort of an aside, it's almost impossible to comprehend what a cataclysm World War I was. When I tried it, I talked about this uh, among my uh, students because you can see the absolute collapse in the global economy. The, tra- the, the rapid increase in trade happened before then the age of steam and sail. Right. So trade had been expanding, expanding, and then World War I happens and it just dies. It's just amazing that the, the cataclysm one was. It's just on a scale that you can't even comprehend in modern day life, like in, like completely different than World War II. You know, uh, and that's, those are, you're looking at, at national numbers and, uh, you know, uh, this is, this is like, this is the area that took the biggest brunt. Yeah, yeah. So it, it would affect national numbers. You can imagine how profoundly it would have would have literally scarred the uh, the landscape of this region. So, uh, unsurprisingly, after World War One, and then and then you know they were trying to get back on their feet. Most of them get back on their feet, and then World War Two comes, and uh, that's another cataclysm. And after World War Two, basically most of the breweries of the deal are gone. Yeah. They're all destroyed, and brewing uh, moves mainly to Strasbourg, where you can log a brew. Yeah, and and even without the world wars, everything was already shifting to loggers to begin right. with. But you had these little cities like Lille and Brussels and uh, Cologne, and that that made their own kind of beer, and and would survive even after that, and and would have survived a lot more <laughs> uh, if it hadn't been for those, those interruptions. Uh, so, but but they had those interruptions, so they didn't survive lager at all. Yeah. Uh, and those styles of beer died. Now, an interesting thing happened, and maybe we should crack open this beer that we oh, that I have here. Yeah, beer. Uh, a new style. So, back in the day, the nineteenth century, they were also called beer to guard, which means keeping beers. To to guard a beer, it's like lager, okay. and it's an idiomatic term. Uh-huh. Um, so, it's if you look it up, and I don't know what it's going to say. Uh, don't. Don't think that I'm an idiot. Uh, <laughs> it's a, it is an idiomatic term, uh, but it mainly just means to lager or to keep the beer. Right. Uh, so after after the World Wars, uh, some of the remaining few breweries uh, have shifted over to meet the, the palates of new breweries, uh, new drinkers uh, in the in the post war era, and they come up with this thing that would develop into what we call beer to guard. And you're pouring one out now. I am pouring out. Uh, Thierry is the name of the brewery. Yeah, it's in a, it's in a fancy script, so I was trying to make sure I understood what letters are there. Thierry Amber, French farmhouse ale. Um, what does it say about it? It's from, oh boy, it's from, uh, it sounds very Basque, Esquilebec, France, or something like that. Uh-huh, Esquilebec. Yeah. Esquilebec, France. Uh 
brewed and bottled by Brasserie Terrier. Amber Farmhouse Ale, Daniel Terrier painstakingly crafts his farmhouse ale in a rustic farmhouse brewery in the beautiful countryside of French Flanders. This brisk amber ale is really a uh, luminous golden red. It is perfectly balanced with a soft, fresh hop bitterness playing off hearty whole grain maltiness and accented by an entrancing nose. Sorry, that's a very small script. <laughs> entrancing nose of earth and spice that is typical of French farmhouse brewing. So Tourier is one of the nouveau brewers who came up after the 1970s when this important watershed moment happened we'll talk about that in a minute but okay. um, i i chose uh the amber to make a few different varieties the ombre uh beers the, the ombre and the brune so the amber the brown mm -hmm. were the classic uh 19th century things uh yeah. belgium and this region of france was not into blonde ales and in fact they were well more amber uh, in order to make them dark nice and dark and yeah appealing huh? but uh, but but while um, brune was really the, the, the color of, of the Belgian region, region uh, ombre was yeah. Lille's thing. So the, an amber beer is, is like the most typical. Yeah. So, so this is nice. It's like an amber red. Yeah. As they say, it's lovely, a little hazy. Mm. So it's very smooth, super malty. Mm -hmm. uh, this, this is the style that came after uh, World War II. So there was a brewery called <laughs> D-U-Y-C-K, which is a, is a, is a Dutch name. Dijk. But they made a beer called Chalmay. Uh -huh. And that was, uh, for whatever reason, the beer that the kids who were going to university in Leal started in the 1970s. Ah. As college students, you know, sometimes they just get right. into weird stuff. Right. And they discover these strong beers are pretty strong. So lagers, you know, they're going to be like four and a half, five percent. These yeah. things were like six and a half, seven percent. Right. And they, the kids started drinking them. No wonder the kids liked them. Exactly. <laughs> and it was this weird beer that was that was first brewed in 1945, uh, which was a sort of reimagining of the old beers. And, they, and it was, in many ways, a fusion of lager brewing, mm -hmm. a lager brewing tradition on the one hand, and this whole keeping tradition on the other hand. Right. And so what they did was, instead of using wild ales, they were, they were pitching uh, ale yeast and sometimes even lager yeast and making these stronger beers that range from 65 to 8%. Mm -hmm. uh, and lager, like a colch. Right, right, so, right. Somewhere between six and twelve weeks, depending on how strong they were. Uh -huh. And so the, the 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 beer that you get is very much like what we're, we're tasting here. Yeah, very so, polished and refined. Exactly, yeah. malt forward, mm -hmm. um, super smooth, all that lagering, yeah. super smooth yeah. flavor profile. Interior Day is actually an incredibly cool brewery. Uh, mm. One of the uh, breweries that that came. So once Beer to Garden became popular, uh, there were a few old breweries, La Chule and uh, 
Catalan uh, and others who had been sort of trying, you know, hanging on from the, the pre-war days, mm-hmm. and they started making theirs. And then there was a whole new crop of young, young, basically craft brewers who came up. And yeah. uh, Daniel Thierry was uh, one of them. He's now getting fairly elderly. His brewery has been around, I think, since the eighties. Mm. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is this is lush. It's like uh, bread and stone fruit, sort of. That's yeah. how I would describe it. Yeah. Maybe a little apricot-y. And... Yep. I think this, I don't know how fresh this bottle is because by the time we get to Oregon, and yeah. so I... there might be a little oxidation, which creates some of that fruit. But, um, but they, you know, they're they are beers meant for keeping. So actually, even when you get an older bottle, it's not, not the end of the world because they age super well. Yeah. Um, and it's just it's like kind of a fascinating thing. The, the thing that, I'm always reminded of when I taste these beers. It's Bach. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, there's that's a good shout. Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> a little uh, darker and malty. Malty, yeah. Thierry uh, is about ten, is it ten kilometers or ten miles? I can't remember. It's the Belgian border. Mm-hmm. And he has other beers that are slightly braisier than this. Yeah, uh, they have more uh, yeast character, and some of them are a little bit hoppier. But I wanted to get this one because this is this is a total callback to the old tradition yeah uh which which has and by old tradition i mean the very old tradition the the style legal groups in the 19th century and also the more modern 1970s revival yeah uh so it's a it's a kind of cool a cool uh reinvention of a style that tastes radically different than the original yeah and the, the interesting thing so people may know you know, you, you often see farmhouse beers, and and underneath that general category is saison and beer de garde. Right. And I think most people are really confused by that because those two beer shops have nothing in common. Right. Like you just taste them, like this tastes like a box. This doesn't say like a Belgian ale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and it really does because the I mean the 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 yeast note is very almost non-existent right it's been lagered away i guess right like that's right and and even uh it's it's not only been lagered away but they ferment cool mm. whether they're using an, if they're using a lager yeast they're going to ferment cool anyway suppress the esters exactly yeah so they from the very start they want to do that yeah um i got to tour this this region and and see a, a couple of breweries uh 10 years ago in our first edition of beer bible and i remember asking the brewers there why do you lager? And it was one of those fascinating, amusing cultural experiences. Really, most just looked at me and kind of confusion and like, it's what, ah, what you do. Yeah, I don't understand <laughs> the question. How? How? What are you talking about? How, how would we make this We're making right? beer. Like, what <laughs> exactly. <do> you... <laughs> they were just perplexed, uh, but. But it produces these. Yeah, there's a way in which they're very, very French to me. They're mm-hmm. they're super elegant, understated, refined. Are are these beers uh, now sort of um, adopt 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 is the wrong word, but um, embrace countrywide? Are they sort of thought of as a as an expression of French culture, or is it still very regional? I, I think a little bit of both. Uh, France has really become a, a, a pretty good beer. Country in terms of uh, oh, shockingly, so yeah, much. just there's a lot transformed. Of, there's a lot of craft beer, and mm-hmm. I got to give France a lot of credit. They tend to not just hate American breweries. Mm-hmm. So the the old tradition, I think most brewers would acknowledge Lille as the capital of brewing, and these styles of beer as kind of the 
the classic French thing. Uh, but many of them now make new versions of beer that, that they're really trying to give a French flavor to. They're all culinary inspired. They'll have uh, fruits, vegetables, spices. Yeah. Um, they may draw on the brewing tradition from another country, but be twisted in a way. They really, I, I, paired, I often pair them when I talk about them with the Italian mm. uh, breweries, right. which have also done very much the same thing. Yeah. Um, they take techniques from around the world and just try to twist them into a, a uh, an Italian frame. Um, I think both, both Italy and France have this amazing uh, cuisine, you know, cultural mm-hmm. cuisine. Yeah. So they think about food uh, in a very particular way. They think, that they think about beer in terms of food. So you yeah. see a lot of that in France where the beers are elegant, restrained, uh, and designed to be drunk with food. Right, right. Which, you know, of course they would think that. that like, yeah, wine with food too. Like, you know, these, these things are meant to be. Yes, yes, yes. That's very, yeah, exactly. It's very French and Italian as well. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I was blown away. I last spent significant time in France in 2017 and probably before that it was 10 years prior and the change in the beer scene in France. I've talked about this on the pod before. It was just yeah. phenomenal. I mean, just completely night and day. It's um, cool. Yeah. And it was, you know, and it was nice to see it be embraced and be embraced as an expression of French culture. Right. Which is key in France. Like nothing will take hold unless it's really, I think, considered a, uh, something quintessentially French about it. So um, it was great. You could find beer all over and really good beer. We tend to uh, disparage regions or countries that are very parochial. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in terms of beer, it's almost always a good thing. <laughs> yeah. You know, people, people really get focused on on doing things in a local way oh yeah and so i think that's exactly right i don't want to taste an american ipa when i'm in france that's right i want some expression of local culture yeah so the french are instantly trying to figure out even before they really know what they're doing uh you know french french uh craft brewers how do we make this french so that's it gives them a big leg up i think in countries where the sense of culture is yeah you know and there's a reverence for tradition especially for uh, I don't know how to say this without sounding uh, like a pejorative. It's not, but the country tradition, like mm-hmm. I think the French are very much uh, embraced um, the farmers and orchardists and brewers and all these sort of traditional uh, occupations. Yeah. So I have one comment uh, going out. See, I'm looking at my notes. Do I have any other comments here? Uh, I will say so. Uh, the blondes are now fairly common. So if you look at uh, the classic, you go, to, you know, go to if you if you could find any of them, you will likely see the ombre, the brune, and then the blondes. Uh, okay. Blondes are much more popular uh, in in France now than the 1970s because everything is shifted to, to blondes. Yeah. They also have things uh, that they're really into um, seasonal beers. So there are. Uh, Spring beers, or beers in the wild, depending on how Christian they want to make it. <laughs> yeah. uh, so you'll find those. Most breweries will make uh, a spring beer and a winter beer for sure, and they'll, you know, they'll be like the spring beer will be uh, will typically be a lighter colored beer, right? Uh, and the, the uh, winter beer will be a, a darker and usually spiced beer, right. and a classic. Um, 
So you'll find most breweries will make those things. And, and usually the winter or Christmas beers are the most popular uh, throughout the year. Uh, people really go crazy for them. So the last thing I do want to mention, though, is uh, this really confused the hell out of me. And it's a handy note. Okay. <laughs> in, in France, yeah. you have the brewery name. Yeah. And then you have the, the name that you put on the bottle, which would, for all the world, look like a brewery name to us. But right. it's the brand name of the the range of beers okay and so there's this brewery uh well, not a brewery there's this brand called Sti, ch apostrophe ti it's one of the most popular okay. uh, uh, french beer cards uh-huh. and you might think oh the brewery's name is Sti. it'll be like Sti or whatever right uh no, she is not the name of the brewery. The name of the brewery is Castellan. Uh. And they also make uh, Saint Armand. Cateau makes Vivat. Duc, however we should say, as we already said, it makes Pen Lane. Gaillant makes Goudal. Goudal. And Saint Landelin. Saint Landelin. Saint Germain makes Page 24. They're one of my favorites. Page 24, okay. They're really cool. They use uh, one of the brewers I visited. Uh huh. They use only local ingredients. So nice. France uh, is, is still a traditional hop-growing region. They have some of the best barley and wheat in the world. Excellent. Um, they're awesome. Uh, San Silvestre. 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 Makes uh, Tremont. Or Garouche. <laughs> <laughs> and Tellier. You're going to have to help me on this one. Uh, La Baffe. Uh, oops. Hold on. Uh, la Bavazienne. La, la there you go. La Bavazienne. So don't look for the names of the breweries. You will not see them on the label. It's okay. so bizarre. So look and for La be... Bavazienne or Trois-Monts or Garoche, page 24. <laughs> <laughs> 24. There you are. Page 24. Uh, Goudel, Saint-Landland, all those. Okay. That's good. That's why you're here, man. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a weird 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 quirk and and they were also mystified when i asked why the hell do you do that because no one else in the world does that and like well that's what you do you have your brewery but then you have your, your beer. Beer, brand yeah. so that is uh in a nutshell after our big talk about buoy and the weather uh, uh wait a minute but on the other side you have this uh this note Pale with Munich, no caramel. Oh, yeah, I, I did have some. We, we talked a little bit about this. So when they make the beer, I just had some some brewing notes. Oh, okay, I see. Yeah. Uh, mostly they're made with pale malt. Uh, they're going to be darkened. They're going to be darkened with Munich, not caramel. Um, and that's largely because caramel is so sweet. They're already a sweet style. of a lot of flavor like that in there. Um, they use mashed rest. Step mashing. Step mashing because yeah. they really want to make a fermentable wort. Right. Uh, because they're making strong beers out of all malt. Um you got this one, ale or lager yeast, but ferment cool for cleaning profile. We just discussed that. Yeah. And then lager for 6 to 12 weeks. Right. And 6.5 to 8.5% is typically, you say. Yeah. Yeah. Typically higher than 6.5. Like, this mm. one may be a little bit lower. It doesn't Thierry. say. I didn't see it, at least. Yeah, Thierry, Thierry is, uh, tends to prefer lower, low, lower strength beers, but yeah. you'll find some there. I mean, breweries that have uh, blonde, green, and ombre. Mm. I really like it. It's got such a lush malt profile and yeah a little stone fruit on top and delightful because of the because of watering and other stuff and the way they make the, the mashes the 
alcohol is often really well concealed. You need yeah. throw them back in eight and a half percent beer. And it's like, oh, it's awesome. The malts are great. And then whoop. suddenly you can't walk. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, thank you very much for that introduction and description of Beer de Gard. Thank you for helping me pronounce it. I now feel like I know more than I did when I began, which is true. Indeed. So that's nice. I can be all uh, be all wise. We should turn to the mailbag. We have, we have, I hope you have one from last week. I do. We had to kick forward this week. I do. Would you like me to start with that? Yes, let's do it. Okay. So our first mailbag entry comes from John Newman. Thank you, John. Uh, and John says, I saw this game in a local game store while, talk, while taking my son to look for some video games. The next part is a note from me. Don't read it out loud. Okay. <laughs> Uh, the title caught my eye, and I had to see what it was all about. The title was Hollertau. Apparently, the premise is you are a hop farmer in Germany during the 1850s. Oh, this is great. And you have to maximize the harvest. I looked at a video online, but the game was way over my head. This sounds like uh, an economist's dream. I know. <laughs> Uh, you probably have like limited inputs and you have to decide, am I going to do like spend a lot of money on labor or... Yeah, kind of like the Sim... I haven't done Sim City or those kinds of things forever, but right. kind of those yeah. kind of things. How do you spend scarce resources to maximize yield? And Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and nowadays, if you're a hop farmer, you got to think what's going to be the next, next latest buzzy hop? Should I plant a lot now? Should I plant a lot of citra? Or is there going to be something else next year? How do I deal with this? Yeah. P.S. Any chance you could bring back the comment by Patrick at the end of the old podcast? Well, that wasn't horrible. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's still there. It just doesn't always get on. <laughs> you can tell that John is a, he's like an old-time listener. Good, good man. That was horrible. That was a tag that came from the very first podcast we ever did. Is we, that right? Yeah, yeah. Right at the end. We did. We, got, we, we did it on Party Gal Brewing, blasted through it, and in the end, we did it like 28 minutes. The last time we ever were really focused and blasted through something. I should, I should go back and listen to those really old ones. Uh, I don't know that you should. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's why we got to go back and redo some of these deep dives on style, just like we did today, because some of those can be updated anyway. That's and, right. And things change. So terrible. yeah, things change. Yeah. So that's uh, that's yeah, we'll, in the future. We'll we'll uh, we'll consider that. But we were able to uh, find a style here today that we haven't done before. It's pretty cool. Anyway, uh, that's pretty awesome. A game about hop growing is pretty darn sweet. Yeah, I. I I should check that out. It looks cool. Uh, I don't know anything about it. I don't play video games. It's the one thing that in popular culture I really have no time for. Um, and I know it's just if I if I go in, it will be a deep. It'll it'll occupy a lot of my time, and I, I don't have the time, so I don't do it. Uh, my sons, yeah, my sons are big. Uh, were were as they went through that phase, big gamers, and I thought, oh, this is gonna be fun. I'm gonna play with them. This is gonna be fun because I used to really love this stuff. But as right. you get older, it just doesn't quite hit the same neurosynapses as it used to. It's still fun, but I don't get engaged like I used to. That's true. Like, but crap. I probably would if I was growing hops, man. I uh, think yeah. about how I was gonna spend my scarce resources and grow hops. Maybe it's, I should. It's true. Yeah, absolutely. All right, we have one more, and this came via Nick. Uh, via Instagram from Nate Johnson. Uh, I sent you this privately. It's I, I don't always throw these on. It, this is just pure 
being nice to us, but it, we, they oh, well, let's read it then. Yeah, they, please. It's so nice. I wanted to read this just uh, because you can criticize us, and I keep encouraging everyone to send us your. You guys are dumb as posts. You get everything wrong comments, but you never do. Uh, but sometimes people write nice things like Nate did, and he wrote just heads up. I wasn't aware of your podcast until last weekend, and I'm already about 20 episodes and 15 to 20 audio blogs in. I find it so hard to find a good beer pod, and you guys do such a good job. You're both bright and articulate, <laughs> and thank you. And can they love for beer? Well, I am. Yeah, well, <laughs> uh, without being obnoxiously over the top. Thanks for what you do, and I'll be listening from now on. Thank you, Nate. It's awesome. You now join an extremely select group of people. Uh, who, who enjoy the pod. Right. <laughs> <laughs> think we're any good? Uh, yeah. Um, uh, what I would say about our approach to beer is we love it. I think it's great. There are amazing people in it, people who are passionate. But it's beer. So I think the point is you can treat it with appropriate reverence and appropriate irreverence. And yeah, that's kind of how we, how we are. Let's not kid ourselves. It's not that important. Yeah. It's just beer, but I mean, it's fun. Like, and it's interesting and there's all kinds of, as we just talked about, there are all kinds of traditions and history and it's a lot of, a lot of good stuff to talk about if you bother to actually learn. And I think that's, that's what I hope distinguishes our podcast from others is, right. is basically Jeff. Jeff, who's got all this deep knowledge that he's gained through all his research. Well, you always, you always say that. And yet it is a business and everything is, has to exist since the last uh, thousand, fifteen hundred years in the context. Well, that's true. Yeah. So understanding how all that works is really important. And you bring that, that game to the, the pod, which is really important. So. All right, Jeff, we should get out of here before we get in too much trouble. So uh, cheers, Jeff. Oh, you know what? I think there is a little here. Let me help you out. With a little beer to guard there. Thank you. All right. So now we can cheers. Cheers, Jeff. Cheers, Patrick.